Aloha Maui. Hello, this is Josh Porter. Jason Burkhardt. Brian Thomas. This is the Solar Coaster. We're on episode 148. This is the Paehu Solar Project over there above Maui Meadows. Um, that has been quite a topic of conversation over the last year. We're going to have an opportunity <laughs> to go to the open house. Or Jay's like, oh, yeah. We had an opportunity to go to the open house yesterday and meet up with not only Eddie Park and um, and Julia Mancinelli and then also the um, um, the uh, Genie was there and then a bunch of other great folks. Uh, talking about and showing kind of new findings in the in, 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 from the archaeologists, the, uh, consultants from, the, and then also the biologists, and then looking at all the stuff that they have to kind of take a take a really close look at before they get the go ahead to do something like this. So, pretty cool. Yeah, I'm 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 I'm, I'm laughing because it's like it's like I think it's our third show about this particular uh, solar installation that's got that's going in. But I mean, it, it's a radio show. We have to. I have to. Well, yeah, and it, I mean, one of the things that it's uh, that that strikes me is just how much is going into this and what it takes to get uh, a system of this scale in, in into developed in, in Maui. Right? Even even in good, yeah, even in good situation, a good situation. And this one, this one has been contentious at points. I think is is the right word. Mm. Um, certainly, certainly an interesting interesting story, uh, and we're gonna get much deeper into it. Yeah, and then the, it, there is a great website you can check out. Go to interjects.com, I think is where it's at. Uh, we will just confirm that momentarily. Interjects.com, and then that's I-N-N-E-R-G-E-X.com. But there's uh, all of the documents. If you go to the Paehu Solar Project, you just click on that, and then all the documents, all the work that's being done to support the development of this project is right there to check out. And so you have things like they're just, any of the questions that have come up, they do a, a study on it. You know, you have the heat island effect. You have the the, the issue with the, with the different types of species that are. You have this archaeology conversation. You have you know, all these different things are happening. Uh, and you can read all all the documents right there so check them out and you can follow up on this all right it it, it kind of shows you how, how hawaii has the reputation of hard to do business a little bit but i mean these guys are definitely covering a lot of dimensions that wouldn't come to mind yeah there's a lot there there's a lot there all right we got a big uh, big show today let's jump right into it Hey, folks, we are The Solar Coaster, a renewable energy-themed talk show right here in lovely Maui County. It can be found Fridays at 105 p.m., Uncle Oi, 1110 a.m. Also, some FM stations, 96.7 FM Central Maui, 96.5 FM Westside, 98.7 FM Upcountry. www.solar-coaster.com is where you can listen live if you're outside our broadcast area. Uh, we're streaming uh, on occasion, but you can definitely go to the YouTube um, channel and check out all the odd interviews and things that don't necessarily make it on the air and certainly a lot of recap from from stuff that has been on the air uh but get the video i mean it's it's actually a really really good resource if you're interested in any kind of solar technology we've covered just about everything that's out there <clears throat> and uh and, and it's all on the youtube channel we're also available on podcast networks itunes stitcher tune in iheart and a number of others all carry the solar coaster just go in look for a little orange and blue waveform logo Got some great sponsors out there that have helped uh, keep the solar coaster rolling on the tracks over the last few years. Fairwinds Wealth Management, Brian Thomas is in the studio today talking about ESG and about all kinds of amazing things in the um, in the financial markets and how to participate in this cool kind of exciting burgeoning uh, area of ESG. Um, we're going to be able talking about some specific stuff today in our news and events section. And then also Enduro Shield and Perfectly Clear Glass. 
Gary Dolberg uh, is here on Maui with Perfectly Clear, and they have a um, really interesting coating technology that has the potential to reduce the amount of times you need to clean your solar panels, reduce the soil accretion on those solar panels, and overall just make this you know them work better, right? So we're testing those out. Uh, on my home and then on other environments as well. And we're going to be talking more about what they're seeing with those uh, those numbers. Sundrum Solar is a wonderful company that's been involved with the solar coaster for quite a while, doing some uh, really radical technology, heat sink technology, creating uh, thermal energy and mitigating propane spend, reducing the amount of money you're spending on propane for some large commercial institutions in Maui, which will be public shortly. Uh, we also have Pantech Design and Solar Edge coming on shortly in Q2. Very excited to see them out here in April. Uh, hey, we're going to jump over to our news and events and learn all about what's going on in the world today. Well, what's going on in the world today is China is starting a or could start a new solar price war um, with all the conversation about the the coronavirus it, it's it's hard to get a, to refocus and try to think about the business side of things again uh, but realistically I mean we're we're gonna get toward the end of flu season here pretty soon and hopefully business will go back to normal. Um, a lot of the solar companies, that, I mean, I'm talking about solar panel manufacturers. So cell, ingot, and panel manufacturers are based out of, out of China. I think it's like nine out of 10 of the largest ones. And even before the whole um, slowdown, virus-related slowdown of, of the Chinese economy, they had plans in place to do a massive expansion to the point of a 40 um, to 40 to 50 gigawatt per year of manufacturing, which is just gigantic. Um, so so it's, it, there's a lot of conversation now about why they're making this kind of investment if, if solar is, is slowing down, the economy slowing down. But realistically, it's, it's a good play because they want to be the ones that own the entire manufacturing sector. They're already nine out of 10 already there. And if they invest more in and the prices keep falling, it's, it's less of an incentive for other companies and other countries to get involved in the manufacturing side. So there, um, how are they going about doing this? So there were some changes, right, in their incentives uh, over there in China, but they're actually increasing by 40 gigawatts. Is that a total uh, increase or that total, that's total, total, total manu No, that's, uh, that's manufacturing capacity per year. Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, I don't know. Like the, we don't see a lot. I mean, I don't know what the uh, overall percentage of uh, the global market is. China. Did you say it was nine out of ten, Jay? Nine out of ten of manufacturers, yeah, are Chinese based. So that's, I mean, that's that's pretty normal these days. You need know, to turn almost everything over, including the uh, the Tesla panels and <laughs> roof tiles, and they say made in China on them. So I mean, it's not it's not surprising, but like I said, it's 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 a significant investment in what their manufacturing capacity will be. And it, you're talking about the incentives that you're talking about were actually the installation, like the same mm -hmm. thing we had incentives for um, installing back in the NEM era. You would get an incentive, a one to one credit. Um, the incentives these days are are negotiated um, for for the utility sales stuff. Um, through those uh, requests for a proposal that we're going to be talking about later on in the show. Um, but generally speaking, um, they're all kind of interconnected, right? The panel manufacturers, the cell manufacturers talk to the panel manufacturers. Sometimes they're the same people. They sell the cells in, then they sell those panels as completed units to someone who's going to do an installation, and then they sell the power that's generated from that to utilities and generally to us, right? And that's how the system works. Um, but if China has all the manufacturing 
capacity. And as we keep talking about, solar panels keep getting cheaper and cheaper. There's not a lot of incentive for anybody else to really get in the game. It, yeah, it's it's interesting that this is their uh, their approach, and it says in the article, block rivals from adding new capacity. So, mm-hmm. it, and it'll be interesting, Jay, to see how it in sort of this newer environment where there's a deglobalization uh, sort of starting to trend take place. We look at, for example, solar panels. Maybe uh, the China will take that one, but. 90% of our antibiotics are manufactured in China, right? So there's some stuff that's going to mm-hmm. come back on shore. It may not be solar panels, but it may be antibiotics and stuff like that where stuff is done in the U.S. But it's an interesting uh, way. And do, you honestly, do you honestly think, I mean, right, right now we're all in panic mode. And, and I, I, I honestly think humans have a really short memory. Do you, <laughs> come, do you, come, come, uh, come August, I think we're all going to kind of forget about this and, and things will go back to normal. So, Jay, in, I mean, you're in Japan as we speak and... Uh, mm-hmm. may see things differently than we do here. But do you think people are in panic mode? Because from my observation, I mean, I don't think people are cognizant of all of the risks of coronavirus. I mean, they're starting to, but I don't think... Uh, oh, here's here's a, here's a very different issue. I mean, we, we've had um, a run on stuff like toilet paper. <laughs> you can't buy toilet paper because it's all sold out. Even though they have enough capacities, the shops are literally putting up signs saying, we have regular shipments. You don't need to worry about this type of stuff. But people are still stockpiling. Sure. Crazy amounts of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Panic mode, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, we, we're having similar kinds of things happening out here. But it's, uh, I guess, you know, China looking past the uh, the current stage and saying there's long-term growth in this and we're going to be the ones that, that take advantage of it. So, uh, I mean, that's who knows? Maybe that'll actually help to start to see some lower prices in solar panels. Um, we could start to pitch out, pitch, pitch beneath that twenty-five cent mark, twenty-five cent per watt mark. The utility I, I, scale. I, I think that's likely. The issue I have, though, is that if they own it all, then they, they I mean, it's kind of a monopoly, and there's not a lot we can do with it because it's international. But if they are selling at such a cheap price, then how can anybody else? How, how can we ever bring any domestic manufacturing back? Hmm. The tariff, tariff, the tariff, the tariffs, maintaining tariff is really the only way. Yeah. yeah, but we talked about in terms of bringing domestic manufacturing back for PV panels. It's not really a job play, right? Because they're, ro- they're those those factories are robotic. So yeah, we might have mm-hmm. them from a perspective of uh, ensuring that we have our own product to work with, right? And we have companies, you know, doing doing manufacturing here. That would be a there's value in that. But in terms of actually the job conversation, there's really as much there. Okay, I suppose. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, so, well, uh, go for it, Jay. Uh, the, the last thing I want to talk about, um, more international side, is a uh, new type of uh, indoor solar cells. Now, we've had all this Internet of Things type of stuff coming around, and there's really no easy way to power it all, right? You have lots of little batteries. You're constantly charging things or, or changing batteries and things for ones that use old double A's or triple A's or something. Um, and there's really no easy way to power it. And the, um, Uppsala university, um, paper just released is come up how they've come up with a new type of actual solar cell. And this is the, the number caught me. This is 34% of visible light efficiency. Yeah, That's a that. lot. That's huge. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> this is, lot. this is similar, Jay, to, this is at Science, Science Daily is the, the, the periodical here. This is similar mm. to that discussion of the infrared um, charging that we found at CES. What was the name of that company? We Charge. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's yeah, a similar yeah. concept. And, and, and to me, I, you know, this is not new. We, we had this conversation with Brian Patterson a couple of years ago about the grid edge. 
and about how mm-hmm. to power IoT devices. And we were excited about that when he brought it up. You know, we were both into that idea. But now we're starting to see some of this tech shape, this tech take shape, and be you know ready to be uh, sold. Like we recharge is one example. But the, one of the differences here is the power capability of this. Um, this pretty the efficiencies and the power capability. So this looks like it could be a, a pretty robust and the, solution. And the fact that it pulls it pulls from indoor light frequencies. So your fluorescent. CFLs and LED lighting, it will utilize that in, a, in an efficient way, which is really, really impressive because generally speaking, those are the frequencies that traditional silicon doesn't respond well to. Oh, okay. And then, of course, WeCharge had an infrared emitter, basically, like a, a power source that would be plugged into an outlet on your ceiling. Um, this yeah, it's kind of a little satellite. <laughs> yeah. This is just taking advantage of existing light that uh, that could, and, and imagine that if you don't, because it's really difficult once you start thinking about, what was the language that Brian Patterson used? He's a CEO of I can't remember the name of the organization, but that think tank on the hybridization of the grid and talking about the grid edge. And he said this was like we we really like that term. Remember, little, Jay? Wonderful, wonderful garden of blossoming of garden of smart devices or something like that. Yeah, yeah, wonder, right? some, something really eloquent like that. But, um, yeah. And so, so, so this basically saves you having to pull wires to it because you've got power going yeah. into the light source, right? Or waste but, time changing batteries and checking batteries all the time. Sure. And then the device, and, would, and you can't, and you can't predict. Predict. I mean, if even if you're building a house today and you kind of say, well, I need to go window security sensors and I need a little camera thing and I need Wi-Fi access points in the ceiling and whatever else you're going to do, um, you can't predict in 10 years, only 10 years later, what your technology landscape is going to look like. Maybe you need to pull a cable to your fridge so that it can tell you when you're out of milk. You know, that type of stuff is coming and we just don't have an easy way to, to do it. Sure. So this gives you the opportunity when this becomes available to very easily uh, build out these IoT devices, not have to worry about that. That's awesome. I love it. Yep. Let's do it. Yep. I want it. <laughs> 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 Which one, Jack? 500 watts? Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we got an article here from PV Magazine. It looks like a couple of companies have been able to break the 500 watt mark with solar panels. This is real solar panel geek stuff, but um, Risen Energy, uh, they look like they have a something like a half cut cell and it's uh, one of those Twin Peak kind of configurations of a 72 cell size module. But to be at the 500, um, 500 watt mark, it's pretty interesting. When you think back a few years back, and they, they quote Barry Cinnamon here uh, from Energy, Cinnamon Energy Systems out, and I think he's in Palo Alto, uh, and he talks a lot about these kinds of things. But what's interesting about this, this is probably utility scale play when it comes to market. And what's interesting is that you're able to reduce the amount of things like trackers and racking and, of course, labor and install, all these things that are very expensive in installing a system, things that guys like Eddie Park from Interjex have to figure out how to do. So if you can come in there with higher wattage modules, you can reduce the overall uh, you know, balance of system costs, we, we often term it, and that can um, reduce the overall energy uh, cost uh, of, the, of the solar system, right? So pretty exciting yeah, to see this If you're getting more, more wattage out of a panel, then you don't need to put as many panels out. I think that's, that's, that's the kicker. The, pro- the big po- thing I want to point out about these is that they are large modules. These are not modules that you would put on on your on your home uh, because they're they're physically too large. It's it's a, a, a two man carry a, operation, right? A foot longer, right? Typically, <laughs> these, yeah. So so you can't you can't just put these on your house. I mean, you could like, potentially do so, but I mean, it's just you can not, put them on not it's not an easy not a, <laughs> it's not an easy install. It's not an easy install as a one guy hiking them up a ladder, right? It's it's tough to move those. Yeah, they're heavier, and the wind catches yeah. them. You know, yeah. it's not a, like you said, it's not a one man one man carry. 
Um, but it's yeah. pretty cool technology. And then they even say down here that, uh, you know, as this is risen energy, that they're going to see continued, you know, growth and efficiency. And then we'll be able to bring this technology to trickle down to the 60 cell uh, modules, which are the ones we use in residential. And that risen claims that it could be, e they don't give dates, of course. Risen claims that it could easily reach 600 watts of output with a 60 cell panel in the future. So, uh, you know, this huh. uh, long, long gone are the days of 250 watt residential modules. Pretty cool. Yeah, love this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, KIUC, ahead of production goal. So this is bringing it back local. Um, the Kauai Cooperative has reached 55% um, total renewable energy production for 2019. That's awesome. <laughs> well, ahead of, well ahead of their 50% for 2023 goal uh, that they had set a number of years ago. Um, and And... I, I, what I like about this is the fact that they've now got um, – they're going to be putting another 20 meg on in the next couple years, and then they've got about 20 years to figure out that last 20%. Remember we talked about the, the whole the, – the spinning reserve conversation and having um, – it, it's really hard to get to 100% renewable energy. It's, it's easy to put like the first – 20 percent on yeah, it's harder to, to get to 50 etc etc but that last 20 percent is is like a virtual impossibility because you're trying to um really eliminate all your firm power needs yeah, and go 100 percent renewable yeah. so they've so so they've they've gone ahead so fast that they now have 20 years to figure out that last 20 percent and well, and I think that was a really really smart decision. It is it is an interesting, uh, especially juxtaposed against what the rest of the Hawaiian Islands are going through, right? So we're going to well, the rest of the world. Well, well, specifically we 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 have this kind of you know testing test bed here. We have KIC, we have Hawaiian Electric companies, and they're both moving towards this 100 uh, percent renewable energy mandate, right? And we see that yep. KIC is moving fast. They're making things happen. They're getting things done. At, when they have a different structure, okay, and uh, yep. now you're like this this idea of eighty percent in the next four years, and then having that uh, the next twenty years to be able to figure out how to do twenty the remaining twenty percent is a pretty remarkable achievement. And uh, you know, alongside of what we're looking at here with Interjects and all the things that Interjects is going through, I wonder if the the client the, the atmosphere is just very different there, and it's easier to make these things happen. I, I don't know. We gotta get a get, we have a we have a conversation going on with Beth Tokioka over at KIUC, so we should uh, explore that a bit more and better understand how these kind of environments differ. We are going to uh, talk to Brian Thomas now. we got a little bit to, to explore here about um, uh, about finance in these uh, volatile times. Brian, take it away. Yep. Uh, it's been uh, very interesting. We talked about renewable energy from Q4 of last year when Josh and Jay had me on the show. And then we talked about ESG, environmental social governance. And uh, wow, this has been a crazy... I've started in this business in 98, and this past week and a half has been unreal. And we talked about risk management, and I think that's something I have to still pound the table on because I think uh, these are not markets that people should play with, and they're going to apply strategies that in the past may not work going forward. But going forward, if you look at um, uh, – there's a great podcast, and there's a whole pyramid of information. And one great podcast that I uh, am into is Macro Voices with Eric Townsend, and he had Jesse Felder on. But he – Jesse Felder is a value investor, right? And value investors generally buy things that are cheap, but they're going down. We, uh, that's not my philosophy, I want to own things that are going up. For example, uh, Solar Edge and Enphase, and they're actually relatively strong. If you look at those individual stocks, these are not recommendations. But uh, pull up a chart, and you'll see that they survived, for the most part, pretty well. But let me just do a real quick 
short clip here of what Jesse Felder talked about ESG. May not have time to follow up, but let's uh, hear what he says. There's always the possibility that uh, maybe this is a by-the-dip moment, at least for some issues. Is there anything that has happened in terms of this sell-off that creates a value play for you? I know you're very much a value investor. Is there anything that's actually a buy here? I do think there are some opportunities, and it, it comes back to, I mean, I think one of the most popular things in the market right now is this ESG investing, and it, I, I do think it's pretty problematic for investors and for the markets. If you look at ESG funds, they're essentially tech funds. I mean, they're overweight tech and consumer discretionary. And so, you know, it's they're obviously underweight things like energy. And so with money pouring out of actively managed funds and pouring into passive, but now even more so, we, I think the money that's flowed into ESG funds in 2019 was quadruple what, you know, the 2018 inflows and 2020 inflows are even on pace to be 2019. So essentially that means there's tons of money flowing into tech, which kind of goes along with that euphoric buying theme that I was talking about before. And energy is being left for dead. And to me, I think energy is one of the most interesting spaces right now for that reason. It is the lowest weighting in the S&P 500 I think it's ever been. There's all kinds of stats that show the opportunity in energy. I think for the first time, energy stocks now yield, or actually they're a lower, lower weighting than utilities now in the S&P so anyways, that's from a value investor. And so that's a little bit different approach, you know, and I want to own things that are moving up. And still, this environment, you've got to manage risk intelligently. And I will give somebody a risk management process. Uh, it's a it's I can't give specific investment advice, but but this is the time where you should seek out proper risk management tools and stuff. But I thought that was an interesting discussion about ESG and how money has so much money has flowed into it and how in comparison, fossil fuel Typical companies like ExxonMobil, they're yielding 7%, right? Whereas the 10-year treasury is, is like 0.7%. Got it. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Maybe we'll get a chance to touch base on that more after uh, this, uh, uh, these, these, air, these interviews that we've recorded yesterday. And we're going to go to our commercial break, come right back from with uh, the consultants for the Interject Paehu Solar Project, starting out with Tiffany. EnduroShield glass protection is the cost-effective way to help protect your PV investment reduce cleaning needs, and help maximize power production. EnduroShield prevents etching, helps reduce soiling and debris buildup. At only two molecules thick, EnduroShield is optically clear, UV transparent. A one-time application provides up to 10 years of durability. To learn more about the coating, visit EnduroShield.com solar. You can request factory application or on-site by certified technicians like the team at Perfectly Clear. In Hawaii and for on-site applications in western U.S., visit PerfectlyClear.glass or call Gary at 808-280-9422. That's 808-280-9422. Sundrum Solar is the manufacturer of a revolutionary thermal collector that fits on the underside of your standard PV panel to maximize energy capture per square foot. The Sundrum Solar Hybrid PVT system combined photovoltaic and thermal holds the world record for peak efficiency, capturing an astounding 86% usable energy. Learn how Sundrum Solar vastly improves electric, heating, and cooling economics at sundrumsolar.com. Pantech Design is ushering the world into a new age of home energy automation through the convergence of smart home technologies and renewable energy management. Unifying solar energy production, intelligent energy storage, and smart breaker technologies with smart home devices, Pantech Design's complete home energy automation suite incorporates unprecedented control of lighting, shades, climate, security, hot water, electric vehicle charging, and many other systems. Contact Pantech today at PantechDesign.com. My name is Tiffany Augustini, and I am a senior biologist with Tetra Tech. 
Um, I, our office is on the island of Oahu, but we do projects throughout all of the islands. We have staff on all the different islands as well. Um, we tend to do a lot of renewable energy projects. So we do work with the wind farms and also solar facilities, but we do a whole suite of other kind of projects too, um, distribution projects or, um, gosh, no, I'm blanking. <laughs> um, like real estate related or like uh, new communities or things like that? We do some. Um, we're a really big company, so I'm sure that in some parts of the world we definitely do that. But here in the islands, we, we haven't done too much real estate. But, um, yeah, we do any kind of projects where there's going to be some type of development and you need someone who's a biologist to help you inform your project. So we're there to help folks have the correct information um, to navigate through the state and the federal regulations and to provide recommendations on, you know, things to do to limit or prevent impacts to biological resources. We also have planners that help with documents like environmental assessments and environmental impact statements. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about these two core areas that you focused in on. Uh, and I'll just ask you right out of the gate. I mean, did you find that out that it was okay for you to move for, for Interjects to move forward with the solar system with the 15 megawatts, uh, 50,000 modules, and what is it, 60 megawatt hours of storage? Right, so we did um, a biological survey, which was mostly, you know, it's looking for plants and animals. And when we do these surveys, we're looking for things mostly that are listed as endangered or threatened by the federal and the state government or species that are rare across our state. So I'll just cut to the finish line. Um, we found two endangered species on the project site. Um, <coughs> Um, but they were in very discrete areas and not throughout the whole study area. So our study area was something like 212 acres. Um, we found the blackburn sphinx moth. We saw three caterpillars for the endangered blackburn sphinx moth. Um, and those were in the eastern portion of the site within an outcrop on that side. And then... So we were just talking um, a moment ago about uh, the biological component of this conversation. Let's just uh, continue on with that. So yes, we did a survey for all of the plants and animals that are found at the site. And what we mostly are looking for when we're out there are um, plants and animals that are listed as endangered or threatened by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the Hawaii um, state. And... Um, also species that are rare. So that's one of the main, you know, the main thing that we're looking at, but then we document even stuff that's non-native to Hawaii. Um, so what we found is we found a total of 91 plant species and 13 of those are native to Hawaii. Um, the most interesting native plant that we found was the Ma'ohauhele, or the Hibiscus brachynridgii, subspecies brachynridgii. <laughs> it's a beautiful um, plant with a yellow flower. And we only found one of them. Uh, and when I've talked with the ranch botanists, there used to be more of that plant out there, but um, those other individuals have since died because there was a pretty big drought. Um, so there was only one left. And what the um, folks on Maui did with the plant extinction prevention program is they put a fence around that one last 
um, plant to prevent ungulates from eating it and other threats, you know. So, what is an ungulate? An ungulate is um, a deer or a cow or anything that's got hooves on it that likes to eat our yummy native plants because uh, them it tastes like ice cream. So, um, the fence is to protect that plant, that one remaining plant. Okay, so you found some plants that are relevant, important to protect, and then I assume you went about a process of like protecting them? That's what you're talking about? Well, so I'm just a consultant, right? I My job is to be an unbiased person and just give my biological knowledge to the folks that are intending to develop um, the site. So I document everything that's out there. Um, maybe I make a comparison to to other sites that we've surveyed as far as, you know, how many native plants we saw at this site versus another site. Um, and then I tell the folks what their options are. Um, so, you know, my recommendation if there's a endangered um, plant on a site is to avoid it. Do not, you know, plan to put your development project where that listed plant is. If they wanted to do that, there's a process you could go through. You could get a, a take permit, and that's an option, but it's, it's not a fun option for anyone. Um, so I usually tell them, best option is to avoid it. And so that was the recommendation that Tetradec provided to Interjex, is to avoid that plant. And I understand that um, some of these biological discoveries are, um, were in the same locations as the archaeological so you could kind of consolidate that effort of relocation or of working around it. Yes, that is very true. And I think that's not unusual in the projects that we see. You know, a lot of places that had these interesting plants or that had the resources to support these native plants were used by, you know, native Hawaiians. So, um, yes, it's, it's cool to see on the map that the archaeological resources align with you know, the more interesting biological resources and then these drainage areas as well. Okay, so we, we, we talked a little bit about some of these uh, plants and then I understand there are some animal species as well. Yes, um, so I'll just talk about the most interesting one probably to most folks, which is the Blackburn Sphinx Moth, which is listed as endangered by the federal government and also um, the state of Hawaii. Um, and so we found three caterpillars of the Blackburn Sphinx moth because first it's in the caterpillar phase, right? And then it becomes a moth, <laughs> but it's easier to look for the caterpillars. So when we do these surveys, we specifically look at the plants that we know that this Blackburn Sphinx moth likes to be on and lay its eggs on and feed on. And so that's what we did. We looked at the non-native tree tobacco, which is present at the site. And we inspect the leaves and we look for eggs. We look for any evidence of them eating the leaves. And we did, in fact, find three of these caterpillars on the tree tobacco plants. Um, again, they're on that notable outcrop, um, which is on the eastern side of the project site, um, where there's also archaeological sites. So where we found the caterpillars, what we recommended to interjects is um, to avoid that area. And my understanding is that you know, that's what they're doing in their, in their design. And just for, you know, the, the, the very broad strokes of this conversation, the TMK is quite large. So there's room to maneuver around the sites that you discovered, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, there are not listed plants all over the site. There is not um, tree tobacco all over the site, which is a non-native plant, but there's not caterpillars all over the site or even habitat for caterpillars all over the site. Um, so 
as far as the biological resources, there's nothing um, present that would exclude them from developing some areas. Okay. So that's very straightforward. So how about, is there an issue of the watershed or is there an issue with uh, runoff or how water, you know, what, what's the story with that? Yeah, that's an interesting topic right now in particular. Um, so what I do a lot at TetraTech and other folks at TetraTech is we look at these features called waters of the U.S., um, which is a definition by the federal government and it is associated with the Clean Water Act. And so it's been an ongoing debate for many years about what is the definition of a waters of the U.S.? Are you, is that a wetland? How do you define a wetland? It's a stream. How do you define a stream? And um, it's still a evolving definition. So when Obama came in, he tried to make it more clear on what a waters of the U.S. is and how you define it and how you mark the boundaries of that so that folks can then avoid those boundaries. And then when Trump came into office, he wanted to redo that definition because he didn't like it. <laughs> so we're in the process of, um, well, they're in the process of redefining it and us trying to understand what these changing definitions mean. But what that means for Hawaii is that, um, you know, certainly a waters of the U.S. is something like a flowing stream that always has surface water. That does not exist on this site. You know, it's a dry area. There's not flowing water all the time. Um, there are ephemeral features where water will occasionally flow after heavy rain events. And um, so we're in the process of, you know, defining those and Interjects will then design their project around avoiding those areas because they also don't want their infrastructure to be, you know, going away in a flood. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about the movement of water. We're talking about federal laws that, that impact decisions around that. And I think what I just heard was that if it's, if it's not a constantly flowing resource, then it doesn't really apply to that maybe to that evolving definition of, what did you call it, the water? Waters of the U.S. So that is what the current um, Trump rule is, is proposing, that if it's ephemeral, um, then it wouldn't be a waters of the U.S. Now, pre-regulations, that was not the case. So I'm learning a lot of great words today. So <laughs> ephemeral means that it's a, 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 a water feature or water that is not permanent. Temporary. Yes, that's a good, yeah, a temporary, it only has water, you know, after it rains really heavy, and then when the rain stops, then eventually that flowing water is gonna stop, right? In Hawaii, we know, don't hang out in the Gulch when it starts raining, because. Yes, not a good idea. <laughs> um, all right, all right, so uh, there's, a, the, water is kind of a, there's some different types of considerations I would think with water. I myself have uh, been a party to developing solar farms in the past and so we've looked at these, had these discussions. Uh, some of them that I can imagine off the top of my head might be uh, impact on the reef, um, so also impact like erosion uh, and then of course now you have vegetation control issues with solar farms typically depending on what that strategy is there can be an application of pesticides. Now you have issues of pesticide introduction to the ocean. So these are some of the core topics that pop out in my mind, just as a, not, not an expert, just a person that has a sense of maybe some of the, the, the impacts that we have to look out for. Are, are these t some of the types of things that are being discussed? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, even though the ungulates that are there are eating the native plants as well as the non-native plants, what they're doing is 
they're serving as, you know, a lawnmower <laughs> currently. They're eating the grasses and they're keeping that down. Now, when they are excluded from this area, um, they're not going to be there anymore. So there's interjects will need to have other measures for keeping, you know, grass down in areas where the grass is still going to grow. So I know they're looking into option. They're considering you know, even doing a controlled kind of grazing program um, to keep that down so you can minimize herbicide use or having, you know, to get out there with machinery like weed whackers and whatnot. So they are fully aware of, you know, the issue of grass growing in the vicinity and what they'll need to do to control that. And um, they're looking into all of that. Very good. So, uh I understand your role and I understand some of the things that you discovered and some of the rules that you're working within and kind of how you're advising interjects on this Paihu solar project. Uh, you know, from our perspective in the solar coaster, the radio show, we see new kinds of vegetation control technologies emerging. Uh, for example, robotic lawnmowers, uh, uh, and, and when I say lawnmower, I mean these massive machines uh, that are coming online just now. I was at CES in Vegas uh, a couple months ago, and there are a couple of companies that are in the funding stage and about ready to launch that can do that. So there's a thing just to be aware of. And then there's also um, uh, a lot of discussion of dual use, and as a biologist, I'm really you know excited to hear what you think about that and what type of opportunities might there be. And uh, of course, there's pollinator discussions. There's discussions about sheep ungulates. I'm going to use the term I learned today. Um, what, what what kind of thoughts do you have, just you know, briefly about dual use or about how to make these systems operate optimally? Yeah, I think it depends on the type of renewable energy project that you're talking about. I mean, obviously, solar. Ha, when you compare it to wind, you know, it c will cover some more area. So I know the wind farms a lot, they'll still allow grazing to happen um, on there with cattle or, or other animals in the vicinity. And also solar companies as well will be doing that to keep the fuel load down um, in that area. It's brought up an interesting word, again, another new interesting word, fuel load. Yeah. So I assume you mean dry um, brush that could ignite that could create a, a brush fire. You mean, is that what I heard? Sure. Yes. Yes. So the fuel load, you know, in particular, things like grasses, um, that once you get these ungulates out of there, then that will be increasing. And so that's the idea is how to keep it so that it's not a fire risk, which is obviously a big concern for, you know, the community in the vicinity here. So you must be at the kind of forefront of that conversation and pioneering solutions. I mean, can you give us any guidance on what's coming down the road? I'm mo people have been using sheep, and I will say that, you know, uh, uh, we did a little research project on the island of Oahu on a military base that was always having problems with controlling these invasive grasses. So we looked at um, mechanical removal. That's, you know, having like a bulldozer come in and remove the grasses. We looked at using ungulates. In this case, we use cattle and then using herbicide. And so we had these little test plots, kind of like nerdy science experiment, and we looked at each one and which one was the most cost effective and kept the grass down for the longest time period out of those three. I guess. Yes. Ungulates. Yes, it was the cows, even though they can get out of there, you know, they, they don't want to stay in their little, um, they got out on Christmas Eve and we had to run them down. But uh, yes, cattle was the most effective option. It's very interesting because one of the, I mean, some of these things are unknown, right? And when you're, when you're looking at a, a, a solar system that's 50,000 modules or even less or more, whatever, you're, you're looking at what is the price per watt to install it? 
what is the long-term levelized cost of energy over the system life? You have to consider things like operating and maintenance costs. And this vegetation control is, a, is a, it, I think, is one of the areas over the last maybe five years that initially was underestimated in Maui or in Hawaii, right? And I have a couple of examples of that, which are just unbelievable examples of, we'll put in this solar farm and then we come back and it is a jungle. Oh yeah, absolutely. We have a lot of sun and a lot of rain and <laughs> that means things are gonna grow, so. I remember a friend, a good friend of mine who's been on the show and it was probably about six years ago and it was a small 250 kilowatt solar farm out in Kanapali. And he's, we were talking about the rate of O&M and how often we needed uh, vegetation control. And he's like, yeah, so once every, you know, uh, the, the the month count that he gave me, I was like, no way. I mean, you need someone out here basically all the time. By the time they're done, you're going to have more king grass. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's even on, on the wind farms, they have to create a clearance pad underneath the turbines to search for any birds or anything that might be hit. And so it's a huge expense for their projects ongoing is to make sure that this area is maintained so that, you know, they have dog searchers that search or people that search and to make sure that it's cleared so that you can look for things in order to be compliant with your permits. Well, I've uh, I learned quite a bit here. Thank you very much. Uh, Tiffany Augustini, did I say that correctly? Yes, Augustini. From Tetra, Tetra Tech, and uh, we got a chance to, to learn some really uh, interesting things about the Paiu Solar Project, so thank you for your time. Yes, you're very welcome. Thank you. All right, aloha. <laughs> Mara Mulrooney from Pacific Legacy. She is one of the um, consultants that's helped to evaluate this project. I believe, I understand that you're an archaeologist, people love archaeologists, so I'm excited to hear about what you do uh, and, and what you've learned about the uh, Interjex uh, solar project of, above Maui Meadows. So aloha, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Uh, so uh, what's going on here today, uh, Amara? Tell us uh, who you are, about your company, what's your background, and in the next five to seven minutes-ish, uh, give us a sense of, of, of what type of information you've been uh, working to you know, uh, achieve, put together for Interjects. So today, Interjects is hosting an open house um, for interested community members, really anyone who's interested in learning more about the Payahu Solar Project. This is a project that we've been working with Interjex on to complete an archaeological inventory survey. What that means is that we systematically survey the landscape and identify any historic properties that are on the landscape, and then we conduct some subsurface excavations to learn a little bit more about how that landscape was used in the past. I work for a company called Pacific Legacy. We're a cultural resource management firm um, who help clients to mitigate um, or provide recommendations to them so that they can mitigate impacts to historic resources. Got it. Okay, so this is a really interesting and kind of almost like fundamental aspect of living in Hawaii, right? Respecting the, the aina and then determining what is the historical significance of a particular piece of land when you're thinking about ways to utilize that land. And and, and we certainly hear this a lot in, in Hawaii, just living here. Uh, and then, of course, we're in, an, in a time where when you look at RFP phase two, phase one and two, we're seeing these huge solar deployments that are potentially going to be put in throughout Hawaii. You must be busy. Yeah, we are. We are busy, and we've really enjoyed working on this project um, because it 
it is a really important goal for Hawaii, right, to reach that 100% renewable goal of relying on good energy, right, and getting rid of those fossil fuels. So this is, this is the kind of project that, of course, we're excited to be working on and excited to be working with a company like Interjects who really understands the need for, you know, balance in, in figuring out how to responsibly develop the aina. Wow, this is, uh, this is exciting. So help me understand, uh, w when and how do you play a role in the process of selecting and evaluating a site? What are some of the types of things that you might see that would be, uh, that could halt a project or that might allow a project to move forward? Or what types of measures do you take to, to, to prepare a site so it can move forward? So what we do is we go out and very systematically walk back and forth across the landscape, identifying any historic properties. So that could be anything from an ancient Hawaiian house site to a ranching wall, um, to really anything that's over 50 years old here in Hawaii is considered a historic property. We then go back and conduct test excavations to learn more about the function and the temporal association of the features that we've identified. What is temporal? Temporal, what time period is it from? Was it used before European contact here in Hawaii? Was it utilized after European contact? Is, re is it related to the plantation era? Is it related to ranching activities, right? You think about the history of Hawaii, very much, um, you know, we have a thousand years of history here and a lot of development, both in the pre-contact and the post-contact period. So that is when Captain Cook arrived, right? That's sort of a temporal marker or a marker in time for us. And so we, as part of this project, we identified 18 historic properties on the landscape, particular area, and we tested six of them. And many of them, um, when we did excavations, and that's the exciting part of archaeology that everybody, you know, thinks about when they think of archaeology, we, we recovered things like ceramics, right, from the 1800s, um, some volcanic glass flakes, basalt flakes, um, those sorts of things. But some of the most exciting things, in, in my view anyway, that we were able to identify is looking at the soil itself in some agricultural mounds, for example, and we sent it off to a specialist who was able to identify starch grains from sweet potatoes or uala that people were planting in this dryland agricultural context. Sort of small scale, you know, your household gardens with your sweet potatoes and maybe some dryland kalo and other things, but that was really exciting, and um, but many of the many of the sites that we identified were related to ranching activities, um, also some small scale agriculture, some temporary habitation features, so small shelters that you know people as they traveled between the more densely populated coast and the more productive uplands, you know people would have been traveling through this area and maybe planting a few things and you know, staying overnight here and there. So it really does give us a glimpse into multiple points in the past or multiple temporal periods, right, if you want to go that way, and learn more about how people utilize this landscape. And then what you do is you can put that, that, that knowledge, right, or those findings together with historical documents like... Um, Mahele records, for example, we know that there was a nearby land commission award by, um, or the land was awarded to a man named Pipio, 
and he arrives, uh, you know, in front of the commissioners, and he says, you know, hear ye, commissioners, I, PPO, lay claim to this land, you know, my house is here, and I have a couple of patches of Irish potatoes. So from the historical documents, we already knew that Irish potatoes were being grown in this area in the 1850s. Now we have evidence that sweet potatoes were being grown before that time, and we put that together with some radiocarbon dates from a nearby little modified overhang shelter where the dates suggest that that shelter was being used between about 1650 AD and 1800 AD, right? So right before European contact, Hawaiians are up there, of course, planting their sweet potatoes. And then after, you know, the events of, of contact with, with outsiders, then they start also growing Irish potatoes, right, which were newly introduced to Hawaii in the 1800s. So kind of cool to see that use of the landscape through time. And then, you know, with this information, then our job is to provide recommendations, right, for how to best preserve these historic resources. And in cases where, unfortunately, we aren't able to preserve just a few of them, um, our job is to, to make sure that they're thoroughly documented and that we've sort of learned everything that we can about these features and documented them really well. Uh, that's a great explanation. Thank you. I, I find myself imagining and really deep imagery of an earlier Hawaii, which is exciting. Uh, so help us understand specific to, I, there's loads of things I'd love to ask, but really related to the project, what were, you mentioned one uh, particular example where there was some archival information and there was uh, cross-referencing, I suppose, what you were finding with the archival information and then determining who was uh, at that particular spot. It, it, was there, what, what types of things are in your report? How does that impact this project? Were there any, was there any, were there any surprises? Well, you know, we, we went into this knowing the area, you know, based on previous, previous archaeological studies that had been done in surrounding areas. Um, we sort of knew what to expect, which is really kind of a low density of archaeological sites, because this is an area, like I said, it wasn't densely settled in the past, you know, people really were settling down on the coast and up in the more productive uplands. So this is kind of an intermediary zone that people would travel through. Um, we did expect to potentially um, identify some trails, but we didn't have any trails that we were able to identify. Sometimes they're marked, sometimes they're not, so that wasn't really surprising. But I think one of the neatest things is that, you know, we're just one piece to to sort of the puzzle, right, of figuring out how to responsibly develop this area. And so once we compiled our resor results and the biologists who had done a biological survey of the area compiled their results, what we found is that the cultural resources are clustered very closely with the biological resources. And so from, from that, that now enables interjects to make some recommendations or, or make some decisions in terms of the design, how to best avoid those areas where you have 
biological diversity as well as significant cultural resources. So you're able to make a recommendation so they can kill two birds with one stone? Well, I, I don't know if I'd put it that way, but so that they're able to preserve a biological habitat, a natural <laughs> habitat, and also significant cultural resources. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, so that being said, is there anything that, um, that, that people who are interested in this project should be aware of, um, you know, uh, in addition to what you just described? I mean, I can't think of anything, you know, if, if people are interested in learning more about this project and about some of our preliminary findings, they can go to Interjects' website and they've actually posted up some of our preliminary drafts. Now, they are preliminary. We're still working on them, as are the biologists. And so, you know, they can learn more about, about the company, about their approach and about the project by going to their website. So from your perspective, um, are we... Uh, I suppose it looks like it's possible to install the solar system here and maintain the integrity of the of the archaeological site. Just the, the bottom line kind of question. Yeah, bottom line, the significant archaeological sites will be slated, or they currently are slated for preservation. Um, and, you know, that's a, a fantastic result of going out there and identifying them, making recommendations, and now the design team can incorporate those findings into their design. Got it. Well, thank you very much. Very clear, very uh, easy to understand. Also very exciting. Mara Mulroney from Pacific Legacy. Thank you. Thank you. I got to tell you, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that I got a chance to learn some brand new things there. A couple of uh, interesting words like ungulates and a, <laughs> a, a ephemeral flows of water and things. But thank you very much to Tetra uh, Inc. as well as to uh, to as to um, Pacific Legacy, Terra Inc., Tetra uh, Tetra Tech, and Pacific Legacy. Jay, what do you got to say? All right, right around. Um, part of the conversation. Miko, uh, now Hawaiian Electric Companies, is inviting you to be part of the conversation. They have an event coming up. It's open to the public, big panel discussions about 100% renewable energies, how we're going to get there. Thursday, March 12th, starting at 5 p.m., panel discussions start at 6. Head to the um, Maui Electric uh, Kamehameha Avenue installation. Very good. Thank you for that, Jay. Okay, folks, this has been The Solar Coaster. We are sponsored by Fairwinds Wealth Management, Sundrum Solar, Pantech Design, uh, EnduraShield, Perfectly Clear Glass, a bunch of great companies. Thank you very much uh, for tuning in today, and have a wonderful weekend ahead. Aloha Friday.